The Gospel of Mark, chapter 9, verse 33. And he came to Capernaum, and being in the house, he asked them, What was it that you disputed among yourselves? By the way, we're going to be considering Christ's conditions of service. Now he's with the disciples. And we read verse 30 earlier on. They departed thence and passed through Galilee, and he would not that any man should know it, for he taught his disciples. And we're looking in, as it were, on a teaching session just for the twelve, for the future apostles. And what a privilege it is to do so. And there are a number of things in the remainder of the chapter before us that will be vital for them. There's an old debate concerning how much we are actually told in a passage like this. Certainly we are told literally of words that Christ used to his disciples and they're accurately conveyed to us. But we're not necessarily told everything. The discourses may have been quite long. There may have been much more detail than we see. But we're given the essential message, the essential principles of all that the Lord taught them, at least. And there are some very significant matters here. From verse 31, and I'll give this Briefly, as a first heading, we find the Lord's example of sacrificial living. For he taught his disciples, and this is the second time in the Gospel of Mark, words such as this are recorded. And he said unto them, The Son of Man is delivered into the hands of men, and they shall kill him. And after that he is killed, He shall rise the third day. Now it's necessary for these words to be repeated to the disciples and they'll be repeated yet again. They are going to have to understand what he's going to do in giving his life, in suffering and dying for the sins of the world, of his people. But it's interesting that he should repeat these words immediately before the instructions we're going to look at because it sets the theme, the subject. The Son of Man is delivered into the hands of men, more particularly the Romans. The Jewish leaders would deliver him into the hands of the Romans. The word here is delivered. In Matthew's Gospel, it is translated betrayed. It's the same word in the Greek, delivered over to. It implies very strongly betrayal. And that's the translation in Matthew. Delivered. In other words, Christ willingly, voluntarily placed himself under the power of men to do their worst, to murder him, to do as they wished. Of course, he knew exactly what would happen. It was all 
determined and allowed in the will of God. But you think of that, the creator of all things is delivered over, put into their power, put under their temporary authority, as it were. He's under the authority of the Father during the period of his time on earth because he's our representative. He has to live a life of perfect obedience to the Father to be our representative, to be our spotless sin-bearer. Before he was incarnate, he exercised equal authority and power with the Father. He was in every sense truly God and equal to the Father. He will return to that state and condition. But while he's on earth, he will submit himself to the authority of God as Father, living the perfect life that we should live. And here he's delivered over into the hands of men to be our sin-bearer. And they shall kill him, and after that he is killed, he shall rise the third day. Don't you see in those few words the sacrificial life of Christ? Of course, he's come to die an atoning, substitutionary death, and the absolute obedience to the predetermined plan of the Trinity, of himself and the Father and the Spirit, that he would come and in three days he would rise again, a life completely laid down and submitted. So the first heading, and it was very brief, is drawing attention to this verse, to the example of Christ, as he talks about his conditions for service. Verse 32, they understood not that saying and were afraid to ask him. Why were they afraid to ask him? Because they feared that their notion of the kingdom of God would come to an end. They didn't yet fully understand him. They thought he'd come to be an earthly political savior and set up a kingdom on earth. And surely if he's going to die then what will become of this glorious kingdom on earth? They didn't yet understand he'd come to be a spiritual saviour, to save men and women for all eternity. And the kingdom of God was an eternal and a heavenly kingdom. They hadn't yet grasped that. They thought it would all come to an end with this talk of death. So they were afraid for any explanation. They thought it would be bad news for their dream. Verse 33, he came to Capernaum and being in the house, he asked them, is this all going to be private instruction now? What was it that you disputed among yourselves by the way? So a second heading, he's going to instruct the disciples about such things as rewards and honours and advancement. And he's going to give principles which will apply to the people of God throughout the New Testament age. To all the people of God, 
and of course, particularly to the servants of the gospel and the preachers and the elders and the leaders. What was it that you disputed, argued and discussed among yourselves on the journey here? But they held their peace. They were embarrassed because they'd been discussing who among them would be the chief disciple when Christ set up what they thought would he had come for, his earthly kingdom. Who would be his secretaries of state? Who would be his immediate subordinate authorities, clad in grandeur and given special office and station? Who would be significant? It was selfish, it was proud, it was ambitious, entirely self-seeking. It was who would get honors and rewards and advancement. So he lays down principles concerning this. They wouldn't tell him what they'd been discussing, but in Matthew's gospel, it tells us that ultimately, evidently, they did tell him. But they put it in the form of a question. They didn't quite admit we have been debating among ourselves who would be the greatest. They said, Lord, who will be the greatest? Words to that effect. And very solemnly, though they're still in the house, perhaps they went into the open air, he convenes a meeting just of the disciples for especially solemn commands and instructions. Verse 35, And he sat down and called the twelve and saith unto them, If any man desire to be first, the principal person, the greatest among you, the foremost, the most significant, first in that sense, if any man desire to be first, the same shall be last of all. He will conduct himself as the least significant and the least important and servant of all. It's the deacon word. In the Greek, the word that we use, deacon. It comes actually from errand boy. He will be a servant of all. Lost and saved, rich and poor, intellectual and uneducated, slaves and free. He'll be approachable by and responsible for and servant to all. He will not be high and mighty. He will not just lecture from a dizzy height. He will plead with and reason with and remonstrate with and encourage and help and come alongside and take responsibility and watch for souls. He will be a servant, servant of all. These are tremendous things. How far people have moved from the principles that Christ laid down for his disciples of being sympathetic, dedicated, 
vigilant peacemakers among the people of God. See the apostles. They were not dignified. They were clad as ordinary people, relatively poor men. There's no sign of any ecclesiastical robes in the Bible, any kind of splendor, any jeweled garlands and chains and drapes and so on. There's no sign of the what one person called the the uh, tea cozies and the eider downs of the Anglican and Catholic churches. There's no sign of special honors, specially carved seats, positions in churches reserved for the bishop when he attends, and so on. There's no sign of very reverends, most reverends, and all the rest of it. There's nothing like that with the disciples. See the disciples, always on the move, always preaching, going from place to place, sometimes like Paul, going without food and provision in order to get to a destination and to preach. They moved among the people. They lived dedicated and sacrificial lives. Most of them, we think, gave up their lives in martyrdom for the Lord. And that's the standard laid down. No palaces, or if they're nonconformist preachers, no multiple homes and luxuries and ranches and expensive possessions and plurality of cars and all this kind of thing. Oh, the rich living ministers, not only among the prosperity gospel people, but even among some reform people. You read of it. None of that. In our estimation, a preacher disqualifies himself if he isn't abiding to the rules of Christ. The servant is not greater than his Lord. How many servants are far more rewarded in material things than their Lord today? But these are the instructions of Christ and the principles. The same shall be last of all and servant of all. And then I give you another heading, and it starts here in verse 36. And he took a child, Matthew says a little child, and set him in the midst of them. And when we hear he had taken him in his arms, the Greek is interested, some would translate it, when he had put his arms around him. Maybe he picked him up. Maybe not. That's not possible to see in the Greek. He said unto them, and listen to these words carefully, verse 37, Whosoever shall receive one of such children in my name receiveth me. Whosoever shall receive. Now this illustration operates in two ways as you see better in Matthew's gospel. It it can be applied to people 
prone people who are seeking the Lord. To seek and find the Lord, we must become as little children. We must lay aside our proud opinions and notions of what we think God should be like and how he should behave. And we should start all over again, learning from the message of the gospel, learning from the scriptures, how to come to him by repentance and faith in Christ alone. We've got to come humbly and meekly to him as needy people, as sinners who need to be forgiven. So it can apply to unconverted people who need to be saved. But here it's the other application of the illustration of the child which is pressed. Mark is using it to describe the humility and approachability of the servants of Christ. Whosoever among you disciples is addressing the disciples and my servants throughout time shall receive one of such children, but children are so insignificant, they're so small, and this is a little child, possibly can barely speak. Am I to stoop down to the simplest and the lowliest? Whosoever shall receive, not slight or turn away from, one of such children in my name for the sake of his soul, for the sake of the gospel. And particularly we're thinking of the child who in his way is a believer. Receiveth me. Because Christ is in that child. And this applies not only to little children, but remember in Matthew's gospel... It is adults who are portrayed as little children. Any adult who has a little child. So it includes young believers, adult people who are childlike before God. Whosoever shall receive one of such children receiveth me. All true believers have Christ indwelling them. If we receive them, then we receive Christ. And if we receive Christ, we receive the Father. That is the argument. Whosoever shall... So I must be approachable to all. Now somebody may be a true believer, and yet that person may have done some very wrong things or believe some very heretical or wrong ideas. It doesn't mean to say, I receive that person as a church member, as a brother or a sister, if there were th serious things to be corrected. But it means I am approachable. I am not standoffish. That's the rule that must bind me. I cannot reject him. Because how, whatever patience or help or reproof he may need, Christ owns him. And if I have nothing to do with him at all or reject him altogether, I am in danger of rejecting the one who possesses him, 
who indwells him by his spirit. So this is about the approachability and the openness to helping people on the part of the disciples. Whosoever shall receive one of such children in my name receiveth me and him that sent me. The approachability of the disciples. A child. The child. Well, you don't want to be like little children in every sense, but this is an ideal view of a child. There's a little child. Christ has his arms around him. He is quiet, docile, obedient. Now that's the picture. The child is content with his lot. The disciples too are to be like children in this sense. Not ambitious for office or for reward. Content. Trusting. Always learning. Do you wish to be a shepherd among the people of God? A pastor? A preacher? You're going to be doing final exams, as it were, every week of your life. You're going to be a perpetual student. You're like a child now, in the best sense, ever learning. You're going to be like a child. In some senses, the little child is ever aware of his weakness and his need. And you're going to have to humbly be always aware of your need of God's power and help and patience and goodness, dependent upon the Lord in prayer, a perpetual student gleaning from the word things for the people of God. So even the disciples, they are to receive people as you would receive a child, never turning away, and they're in some senses to be like little children in their contentment and in their learning mode. So there are instructions about the humility and approachability of the disciples. And then another heading, and it seems to be rather different. Verse 38, And John, the disciple John, answered him. Why the word answered? Well, because it connects with verse 37, Christ's words, Whosoever shall receive one of such children in my name receiveth me. John answered, Master, we saw one casting out devils in thy name. Those are the key words, in my name, in my name, said Christ. Yes, that reminds me, says John. We saw one casting out devils in your name. We forbade him. Did we do wrong? He was doing it in your name. He just heard Christ saying those words. Were we wrong? Yes, you were, says Christ. 
We saw one casting out devils in thy name, and he followeth not us. And we forbade him, because he followeth not us. Were we right in that, or were we wrong? You were wrong. And John unwittingly has given the reasons why he was wrong. We saw one casting out devils. That's one reason why he was wrong. This man was successfully casting out devils. He wasn't like the false people who tried to cast out demons but they couldn't or who claimed to when they weren't. He was actually successful, this man. He was working miracles in the name of Christ. That's one reason why they shouldn't have forbade him. They should have paused. But he is successful. And then, in thy name. He believes in Christ. He's doing it in Christ's name. He's a believer and he's working miracles. Who was this man? Well, there were guesses. Perhaps he was a disciple of John, who believed the message of John, that Christ was the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. But he hadn't detached himself from John and from his disciples and followed Christ personally, but he was a believer and, amazingly, he was successful. More likely, he was one of the 70 who Christ had sent out. Not one of the 12, but one of the 70 who was given by Christ power to cast out demons. But he wasn't in the band that followed Christ. But he had actually been given the power and given the commission. We saw one and let's say successfully, because that's implied, casting out devils in thy name, but he doesn't follow us. And the words of Christ are, verse 30, forbid him not, for there is no man which shall do a miracle successfully in my name that can lightly speak evil of me. He that is not against us is on our part. He's a supporter. He's with us. He's a believer. But supposing this man might have been one of those who, when Christ comes, will say, Lord, Lord, did we not cast out devils in thy name? And it turns out to be a phony and is rejected by the Lord. How would the disciples know that? Ah, but you see, the people who Christ will reject in the last days, though they say, did we not cast out devils in thy name? They didn't cast out devils in his name. They only pretended to or convinced themselves they were doing so in their sinfulness. They always were phonies. And it's so today. 
We know there are many, many people in the charismatic movement who truly believe in the Lord. They're true Christians. And they love the Lord and follow him. But when their leaders perform miracles so f- and so on, they don't achieve anything, really. Most of it is smoke and mirrors and pretense and exaggeration. Most of it is the healing of conditions which are not deep organic conditions. They're conditions which will respond for a time at any rate to powerful suggestion and so-called healers and seem to improve but not for long. The healing of people who come into a meeting in wheelchairs is invariably phony and not real. No, it's when Christ, the people who come to Christ say, Lord, Lord, did we not do this and that, who were rejected by him because he never knew them, are phonies, they're Claims are only claims. But this man, his miracles were genuine and he believed in the Lord. So what's the overall purpose of the passage? He that is not against us is on our part. Well, I'll tell you. The disciples are being prepared for the future. They're going to be taught in much more detail and by the Holy Spirit how to organize churches. When Christ has ascended and after the day of Pentecost, they are going to be those along with Paul, the apostles of the Lord, who will give the inspired instructions as to how the churches should be ordered. And what will be the pattern of the ordering of churches in the New Testament? It will be individual congregations that are autonomous, like the seven churches of Asia in the book of Revelation. And there are the lampstands or the candlesticks of the churches and Christ in the midst dealing with each one individually. There will be no church of England, church of here, church of there. Not in the New Testament. There is no sign of a denomination. Every church is an autonomous church directly accountable to Christ and obedient to the word of God. And don't you see the disciples are being prepared for this even back here. Look, there's a man who isn't in our company and yet he is successfully working miracles and he believes in Christ. And he's doing it in the name of Christ. But our problem is he isn't one of us. Don't you see the disciples are being prepared for the gospel age? When this will be our church, but there's another over yonder. The fact that those people are in an individual, independent, autonomous congregation accountable to God and they're not actually of us. We may have friendly relationships but they're not under our jurisdiction or our discipline or our teaching. 
it doesn't make them any less Christian. The disciples are being prepared for this and they're taught the principle that will be elaborated on by God later on. He that is not against us is on our part. The New Testament church will be a vast number worldwide of individual congregations, all accountable to God. And can't we nowadays see the wisdom of why God never created a denomination and Christ never founded a denomination because we at the latter end of history see what's happened to all the denominations. You get a denomination with a kind of pyramid structure of authority and one person or one group of people at the top that just makes life easy for the devil. He just corrupts the leader or the leaders and is one the whole denomination. He just corrupts their seminary or their, or their council and he's got it all. And that's what's happened to denomination after denomination. Started with good intentions. Oh, we've got strength in numbers. And together we'll proclaim the gospel and win the community. But they had an awful weakness. A single authority or council. Corrupt that. You've in time won it all, says the devil. So Christ never did it that way. Individual congregations. And if an individual congregation swerves from Christ and loses its way and becomes theologically liberal and wayward, in time it self-destructs, it loses its power, it disappears or collapses. Perfect. If it's a denomination, it goes on, spreading falsehood and error and confusion. Well, that's a digression. But you can see the beginning of the teaching of the autonomous congregation right here. He that is not against us is on our part. Do away with this spirit, John, if he's not one of the twelve or one of the seventy with us, actually present, he's out of court. He's not us. That's not how it's going to be arranged. That's not the plan. That's not what the church will look like. The preparation for autonomy. Well, time is going on. I've only a few minutes. One last heading. And uh, by the way, verse 41 consolidates this that the man in mind is a believer who's helping them. For whosoever shall give you a cup of water to drink in my name, because ye belong to Christ, verily I say unto you, he shall not use his reward. But I want to come just down to verse 43. And the final heading will be this. The believer 
is always practicing mortification. Do you practice mortification? The believer is always doing so, the true believer. The believer is always ready to put to death anything in his life which hinders his spiritual walk or the work of Christ. Mortification, putting to death the things which are antagonistic to your walk with God. If thy hand offend thee, cut it off. You know, of course, that the Saviour is not speaking literally. If thy hand offend thee, the hand with which you work and labour and act and do so many things, it stands for your activities. Do you have an activity which uh, is probably not unholy or sinful, but you practice it to excess? It's something you enjoy, something that's got you, something that you like. And you do it so much that you neglect your wife or your husband or your family. It's a consuming interest. And it takes away your devotions. And you don't have a service for the Lord because you're so occupied by this activity, whatever it is. Maybe in itself quite free from sin, but not because it's displacing spiritual things. And it's exercised to excess. So it deprives and it steals and it hurts others. Well now the meaning of this verse is that a Christian is ready to put it to death. If thy hand offend thee, cut it off, for it is better for thee to enter into life maimed than having two hands to go into hell into the fire that never shall be quenched. Well, if you go into hell, it means you were not a believer. You were never saved. Because if you're truly saved, you will never be lost. The doctrine of the perseverance of the saints, which is all over the New Testament. So what do we conclude from this? the believer will put it to death. This is like a mark of grace. If something causes you to sin or neglect your spiritual life and service and you're not willing to put it to death, you're not a Christian. You're a nominal believer. You need to be saved. That's really what the Lord is saying. Because if you're heaven-bound, however hard, you'll be ready to put that out of your life. Altogether, if necessary, this thing gets hold of me and drives me. I cannot do it in moderation. Even though it's not intrinsically sinful, I must get rid of it altogether. 
a believer is ready by the help of God to put it to death. And if thy foot, verse 45, offend thee, cut it off. The foot, travel, holidays, excessively done, wrong relationships perhaps is included in this. Your foot, where you go, who you seek, who you're following after, friends who are injurious to you and your spiritual life. The person who's heading for heaven, however painful, is ready to mortify and put away the source of fall and temptation. It's the unbeliever who can't do that. Verse 47, And if thine eye offend thee, pluck it out. Do you covet things? Are there certain things you long for much more expensive than you need? Are you hooked on movies, films, television? If you can't cope and limit and ration and curb things like this to that which is noble and holy, get rid of it altogether. If thine eye offend thee, whatever you watch, anything which presents to you images that are unclean, the truly saved person will fight it and get rid of it. He won't watch those films, those television programs which produce a snare and a temptation at all. May get rid of the television altogether. Whatever it takes, the believer is ready to do it if necessary. It's the one who's going to hell where the fire is never quenched who cannot and will not Get rid of the obstacle, the spoiler, the difficulty. And so to the final verses of the chapter, verse 49. For everyone should be salted with fire, and every sacrifice should be salted with salt. Many people think that means that hell will be unabating. But I go with those who think that it means, and I'm convinced this is most likely, that in every true believer's life, there will be some painful things to do. Mortification, getting rid of the offensive thing for everyone. Who's everyone here? It's every disciple, every true believer. Every true believer shall be salted with fire, sanctified. This is not destructive fire, this is sanctifying fire. And every sacrifice shall be salted with salt. So, disciples are those who are prepared to put to death the things 
that hurt, spoil, poison, steal from, harm, if necessary. That was the last heading and the last part of the passage. The Lord's conditions for service. 